we stand with the Palawa and Pakana of Lutruwita, along with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples Australia-wide. We wish to firmly acknowledge that Aboriginal and Torres Strait sovereignty was never ceded. It was, and always will be, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander land. Australia is the only settler colonial state which does not formally recognise the dispossession caused by colonialism. Carried by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and the land and sea which we call home is the world's oldest continuing living culture, dating back to over 65,000 years. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples were the first artists, scientists, creators, storytellers and so much more. Today, and always, we acknowledge and honour the depth and richness of these cultures. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices will never be silenced. We at Twix will work harder to not only stand alongside, but to amplify Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices. And we invite you, the listener, to do so as well. We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings independent and interesting STEM, that's science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine, to you from Tasmania. The show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station, so head to edge.org.au for more information. My name is Dr Kate Johnson and today we have the lovely company of Dr Alice Gorthy. Dr Gorthy is originally from France, but since 2017 she's lived abroad for her research. Um, Alice and I actually met in Australia, got to know each other in Italy, and now work together in Switzerland, just to give you a little window into <laughs> quite how international Alice's work has been. So Alice is part of the Plant Ecology Research Laboratory here at what we call EPFL, or the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, based in Lausanne, Switzerland. And Alice's current research is very topical after the heatwaves that have just gone across Europe this summer, as she studies the effect of heat and drought stress on forests with the help of drones. But before we get into all that, Alice, we want to sort of ask you about you and how you got to where you are now, starting with um, growing up in France and what interested you in science and in plants. Yeah, thanks, Kate. Um, yeah, so yeah, I'm French. I've, uh, I'm born in Paris and I did all my studies actually in, in Paris, France, uh, until my master. Uh, and it was, yeah, it was great living there. I, I have really fond memories. I absolutely love, love it there. My parents are still living there, actually. So, <laughs> um, and so, yeah. After my, so during my master, I did like a small, like six months internship in UK, uh, and it was to really finish up my master th- thesis, and that was really nice. And that was the first time I actually worked with plants was during this internship, um, and I worked on the effect of drought and herbivory on like little oaks seedlings. And that was like really the first time I, I was like, wow, this is great. I kind of want to work into this. I want to work in, in this. Um, and so that's why after my master, I did my PhD in um, the Augsbury Institute for the Environment in Sydney, Australia. And that was also yeah, a great experience. And then now I'm here and, uh, in Switzerland. And uh, I think I'll be moving after that in UK again. But that's future future plans. <laughs> 
so many places, so much different research. And I do want to ask you a bit about your PhD in Australia because, you know, we're a show based in Tasmania. I think people will be interested in what it's like coming to Australia from, from overseas. So we talk about language a lot in our lab here because Switzerland is very multilingual. And I, I do wonder, coming from France, going to Australia, um, like what your level of English was going in, what it was like, and especially what it was like being in an, in an English-speaking place with such a strong accent. Yeah, so um, I was in UK just before, so I think that really helped my uh, my English. Uh, even though I have a very strong accent, I cannot get rid of it. It's very <laughs> difficult for me. It's <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, it was... You know, it was like a big step. It's really, really far away from <laughs> anywhere in Europe, really. Um, but it's, it was a very exciting move because I was ready to to do something a bit different with my life. And, you know, professionally, personally, I think it was a great, great move for me. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it was a bit of a learning curve in the, in the language, especially because I was living a bit in the countryside of, um, of Australia. And so, of course, I had trouble understanding, you know, people that came from like maybe more remote places such as the mechanic or the bus driver mm -hmm. or and you know they had trouble understanding me too because <laughs> I have a very strong accent <laughs> so it's not only one way you know <laughs> um but yeah I mean uh now I think it's funny because probably the Australian accent is the one I understand the most most of the time <laughs> but yeah I think it was definitely a learning curve but you know it's also when you're in research is so international you talk to mm -hmm. a lot of different people from different origin and you know I was sharing my house with you know an Indian guy and then an English guy and then an American girl so mm -hmm. you hear a lot of different accents so it definitely yeah helped me understand the broader range of people I guess. <laughs> It must have been nice to sort of be living with these people who are also probably struggling with everyone's <laughs> accent. <laughs> um, so now I just want to move, before we go to the next section, briefly onto what you did in Australia, because I know part of your research was on a really interesting ecosystem that we call mangroves. Um, and I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your research, a bit about mangroves and what they are. Uh, yes, so I, I was working in plant physiology and plant hydraulics, so basically how extreme events such as drought impact um, tree physiology and tree death, basically. Um, and I was quite interested in looking at mangroves because we don't have mangroves in Europe or very, very few. <laughs> and so this was very exotic to me. Um, and, you know, mangroves, they are living um, at this interface between the uh, sea or, um, or water and, and the land. And so it's a very p peculiar environment. And so they have to uh, um, adapt uh, different traits. So usually the roots are uh, aerial, aerial, aerial. Oh, my God, this word. <laughs> you know, they're just in the air. <laughs> aerial roots. <laughs> Um, and they live in like really like condensed soil, like mud type soil. And they also uh, most of the time um, on the sea front. So it's a lot of salty water. And that's really usually that's really stressful for plants to have mm. salt and, you know, mud and not much oxygen available and often flooded. That's the word I'm looking for. Flooding. Yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they have a lot of stress already. And when you think about mangroves, you don't really think about drought impact right mm, not at all but back in 2015 there was like this big um el nino thousand oscillation event so that's enso uh, the 
short word for this. Mm-hmm. And that that means that the sea and the ocean dropped a couple of uh, <laughs> millimeters uh, back in the um, north of Australia. So there's the mm-hmm. Gulf of Carpentaria. And that exposed a lot of mangroves to just, you know, the salt pan. Oh, wow. For, you know, days and weeks. Um, and so obviously they a lot of them died. It was crazy pictures from the sky, from the satellite, when just like mangroves just died because it was there was no water anymore. They had no access to groundwater. They had no access. To, they were not flooded anymore. Mm-hmm. And they were, you know, very salty environment, very dry, very warm. So... Yeah, that was really crazy. So we had, we, sorry, I'm rambling, but the project was to measure basically mortality and really how did I die and what were the threshold of this death, you know, like uh, physiologically speaking. So this was like, yeah, super, super cool, super interesting uh, to work uh, out there. Yeah. Yeah, wow. What, um, I mean, a terrible event, but good timing for you to be there <laughs> as, a, as a drought, as a physiology researcher to be able to understand that. That's awesome. So stay with us for part two, um, where we talk more about what Alice is doing now. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. And today we're talking to Dr. Alice Gorthy about her research in plant physiology. And Right now, we're going to talk about what Alice is doing in Switzerland. So, Alice, I know here you work in what's called temperate forests, but to people in Australia, a temperate forest is actually quite a different thing. So I wonder if, you know, you've been in this unique position where you've seen Australian temperate forests and European temperate forests, if you could tell us what the forests you work in now are kind of like and how they might contrast to what people are used to back in Australia. Um, yeah, so Euro- European temperate forests are mostly, uh, not mostly, but it's, yeah, I guess it's mostly deciduous species. Uh, you will find oak species, orange beam, um, like, yes, uh, trees like this. They're not uh, as big as in Australia, I guess, the trees, uh, <laughs> but they're very, like, um, green, very luscious uh, forest. Um, and you can find, if you go up north, you will find more and more conifer species. Um and yes, yeah, so I've been working in this forest now uh, for, the, for the past two years. Uh, but we've been going also down to Spain, which much more like an arid, uh, arid climate. Yeah. Yeah, great. And and what have you been doing? I know you've been using drones and you've been assessing um, heat in forest canopies. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, sure. So, um, well, it came it came from really the fact that. During the heat wave, you can see the trees really like shedding leaves, like a lot of leaves mortality is happening in trees. And that obviously has a big impact on really what's going to happen with the carbon and water cycle in trees, but also, you know, in soil and everything. Um, and so we were wondering how these heat waves may impact the whole tree canopy, basically. Um, and that's because, so a bit of physiology now, <laughs> but we have these pores on the tree that are called stomates, and that's how the tree uh, captures uh, atmospheric carbons, but it also loses water through these pores, basically. And you have this phenomenon called transpiration, and that's the losing of water through these pores. And that's the same as us as humans, I guess. It's just the tree is able to regulate the leaf temperature by transpiring. 
Um, and so what you can expect is that if you have a really nice, well, wet environment, then you have these pores that are wide open and the tree can transpire as much as it wants um, and regulate the temperature. But if you have a heat wave and a, a, a drought associated to it, then these pores are going to close up in order to keep the water inside the tree. Mm-hmm. But by closing these pores, then you stop the transpiration stream and the leaf is going to heat up really, really fast. And mm-hmm. if it comes to a certain threshold of heat, it's going to burn the leaf, basically. And so we were wondering what were these thresholds in different type of uh, forest, different ecosystems, different species, uh, and basically to, to, to really guess what's going to happen in the future, what's the future of this forest uh, during a heat wave events. That's really cool. And the idea that trees kind of sweat much like us to to keep cool, I think that's that's a really good way of explaining it. So how are you assessing that with drones? Yeah, um, so we have a, a thermal camera attached to the drone, so it's infrared camera. And by just flying over trees and forests, you can capture the temperature of the leaf or con- temperature of the canopy. And that's really how you can kind of like, it's a good proxy uh, to assess stress mm-hmm. in trees. Uh, that's, so that, that's how we do it. So we, we just fly drones over forest and we measure temperature, canopy temperature and so a lot of post-processing things that are not that I'm not going to talk about because it's so boring <laughs> so complicated but um, yeah the fun part is the drone and piloting the drone for sure yes I can imagine and yeah I've seen some great pictures pictures of you and also pictures the drones have taken of you yeah you controlling them and you've actually recently published some research on this um, you're assessing canopy temperature and seeing what happened so what did you find? So, yeah, we had this plot in Switzerland, in a very dry part of Switzerland, that is artificially irrigated for the past 20 years, actually. So it's a very long-term experiment. And we looked at the thermoregulation in this pine forest, so it's pinus sylvestris. And uh, we expected that the trees that were irrigated would transpire more than the trees that are living in drier conditions, uh, because they have access to more water, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what we've seen is that there is there was really no difference in canopy temperature. And one of the hypotheses that we made, and that's still an hypothesis, <laughs> <laughs> is that the trees that are in drier plots, they have small needles, less dense, and so they have a lot of air flowing in the canopy compared to the more like irrigated, so more dense trees. And so maybe, you know, between the transpiration stream that regulates the leaf temperature and the airflow inside the canopy, maybe what we're seeing is, you know, very similar canopy temperature. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And you, I know in that paper you observed differences in the, in the morphology. Did you find differences in the morphology of the individual leaves? Were each of the individual leaves smaller in your, in your drought treatments? And do you think that would affect the amount of water that can be lost from an entire canopy? Yes, definitely. Uh, so the needles, the trees that were growing in drier places, the needles were like, yeah, much, much smaller and uh, the branches were smaller too. So yeah, there was definitely like a lot of acclimation to dry condition compared to the one that were irrigated. Oh, cool. So they were, yeah, they were adapting, adapting over this 20 year period to 
the reduced amount of water. That's really interesting. So we've heard about what Alice is doing here in Switzerland um, and stay with us for part three as we talk about her next step um, and also some of her thoughts about moving around for academia and the pros and cons of that. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Dr. Kate Johnson, and today we're joined by Dr. Alice Gorthy, and we're talking about um, plants and heat and moving around for research. And now, Alice, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what your next project is looking like, because it's a little bit different to what you've been doing so far. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So... It's still in the works, but I'm looking. I, I want to look at the effect of elevated CO2 in the atmosphere, <laughs> because when you think about, you know, future like climate change and future projected weather, well, we're going to have, you know, in more intense and longer heat waves and longer droughts. But what you're going to see too is elevated CO2 in the atmosphere, mm-hmm. and you know, we know that. Drought is really bad for trees, <laughs> but elevated CO2 has actually a positive effect on most plants because, you know, it's it's like you're losing the same amount of water, but you're picking up more carbon from the atmosphere. So it's definitely, you know, better for the tree. Um, yes. Could you remind us with photosynthesis, what are, what are the inputs and the outputs? Why is CO2 um, increases? Why is that good for plants? Uh, yeah, so CO2 is taken by the tree and putting in like the very different like cycle I'm not going to go into this because it's very like biochemical. <laughs> I don't remember it so much. <laughs> but then it produces like sugars and sugars are then used for making new tissues or new leaves, new wood, new everything. Mm-hmm. So more carbon you take up, better you you are, like bigger you are or yeah. something else. like very simplified, but I guess that's like the main thing. So the carbons are taken from this little, this little pores, the stomates. Um, but when you think about future climate, climates, if you have a drought but elevated CO2, what's happening there? Can you still have this beneficial effect from the elevated CO2? Or is it just like negative from the drought? Do you just lose all your leaves? Are you, are you more vulnerable to drought? Because you're taking, like, it's, there's a lot of open questions. Mm-hmm. And um, I really want to look into this in uh, mature, mature forests, mature temperate forests. And you have these projects all around the world, actually, in, in Australia, but in the UK and in the US, where they put these massive rings um, in, in mature forests um, that are putting CO2, added CO2 in the atmosphere. And so I know it sounds really bad, but <laughs> it's very local. <laughs> uh, and so you can actually have these like, big trees that are experiencing elevated CO2 for the past five years. And next to it, you have these trees that are experiencing normal amount of CO2 like ambient CO2 for the past years. And so you can really compare these these different trees. And so so that's really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah, they're just amazing, those experiments. I think they're called FACE, right? Mm -hmm. Free to air. Enrichment. Uh, It's free air carbon enrichment. It's, yeah, FACE. So you have Uke FACE in in Australia, so you kill choose FACE. And then you have um, Bifor FACE. So it's like Oak FACE in UK (laughs) from Oaks. (laughs) So, yeah. Ah, it's so cool. It's so cool you're going to get to work in those systems. Those big long-term experiments are really important for advancing mm-hmm. our understanding. The 20-year-old twenty, 20 experiment you were talking about with the pines and then the face network across the world, they're just amazing resources for us. Mm-hmm. And it's really exciting, really exciting research. 
So for the last part of the episode, I want to ask you about your experience in academia so far, basically, because as people will have got the idea of, you've you've moved around a lot and that comes with a lot of, you know, pros and a lot of cons. And I, I wonder what your general take on that is. Well, you know, the pros of moving around is that it's very exciting because you can be in a new place, you can meet new people, different culture, you can really immerse yourself to, you know, a different place. You can almost like reinvent yourself in a way. Mm-hmm. That was something very exciting for me when I moved to Australia. It was, you know, it's kind of like starting over because it's a place where no one knows you. And it's like something new per- professionally, something new personally. And that was really fun, really exciting. A bit scary, but, you know, <laughs> good scary. <laughs> And um, so now I've, I've been moving a bit uh, more, and but still exciting, I think. Um, of course, the, the cons are that you're away, usually from your family and friends, and um, that can be, you know, very difficult, especially in, in a stressful, you know, with an aging family, for example, or... Um, so, of course, that's, that's very difficult. And actually, I was in Australia during the, the COVID um, pandemic, and so that was very difficult because I couldn't come. I mean, I had to finish my PhD, so I couldn't really come back home. You can also miss some really big events. My One of my best friends got her first baby while I was away. So I was a bit, you know, excited for her, but so sad that I wasn't part of this. But I guess yeah, it's, a, it's a good mix of good things and bad things. And it's But the thing is that it's very personal, how much you want to, you know, it's finding a balance when you move away. Yeah, you're right. It's a very individual experience. Everyone's experience is going to be different to someone else's too. And I wonder, you know, having moved a number of times, what's helped you when you've arrived in a new place? What have you really appreciated from people? The social aspect was very, very important. I cannot emphasize this enough. Um, people came to me right away. They included me in their group of friends. They included me in everything they were doing. So I never you know, you miss home, but it definitely helps having this group of people around you. Like the social activities being, you know, being part of something, you know, it it feels really, really good. And uh, I cannot thank enough people that did this for me. Um, I wonder what you think, you know, having been a researcher for a while now, what you think some of the biggest barriers are still to people being able to access and or stay in academia? Mm. And maybe if you want to go into it, what you think we can do about it? I think there's something that comes back all the time is the stability. Because to feel like you can like, like can make it in academia, you you need to move. Like it's not something like secret. It's people say that out mm-hmm. loud that you need to move. You need to experience multiple different like multiple supervisor, different labs, different country. And, you know, very exciting when you're 20, not so exciting when you're 30 and you're trying you're trying to, like, have a stable life. Yes. Because, as I said, like, every time you go to a different place, it's starting over. So it's really fun when you're 20. It's getting tiring when you're 30 and you're trying to, to get, you know, a stable life and more to settle down, really. <laughs> but, again, very personal opinion. Uh, that's only me. <laughs> but I think talking to different people, I think that's what happens that's the main the main issue in academia is that we do not have a permanent position until we what 33 35 sometimes later yeah. and if you don't have a 
you know, a willing partner or, you know, understanding friends and family, then that can really mess up your personal life, I think. What do you think the solution is to that in, in a very ideal world? That's a very difficult question. <laughs> I don't think we can solve it because I think moving around is definitely a very good thing. Also, back at academia, academia, you know, it's like it really helps you grow as an academic. So you can't really remove that, right, from from academia. Um, maybe allowing more time to be away from your desk, you know, like um, working from home and wherever your home is. Um, making it easier for your partner or your family to come and join you for a longer period of time. Um, I don't really have any solution. It's diff- super difficult, yeah. No, I, I think that's really good. And it's funny It's funny you mentioned that because I think that's the things that what we see is the good fellowships, which is that's a um, something where you get money to do a project that you've designed. They do that. They give you more money if you've mm-hmm. got a family. They give you greater flexibility. They give you money to move around and often um, have a clause sort of in them that's about working from home, working Mm -hmm. from wherever your home is. So, yeah, I I think all the things you're saying are things that I hope definitely (laughs) are becoming more mainstream in academia because it's definitely a big, a big barrier. So that's all we have time for today. So thanks for listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science-related content and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you liked the show, you can get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. And I'd like to thank my lovely guest, Dr. Alice Gorthy. It's been a pleasure and wishing you all the best for your next step because you're leaving us soon, which is very sad. Um, But exciting. I'm excited for you. Um, And catch you next time. Thanks for listening. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. That's What I Call Science is brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find the show at all major podcast streaming services and find out more about us from our social media channels. Make sure you like and subscribe to keep up with all the exciting science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine research in Lutruita, Tasmania. This show is supported and strengthened by Edge Radio, so head over to edgeradio.org.au for more information about them. Thanks for tuning in today, and may your week be STEMtastic. what I call science, love inspiring children and youth to follow STEM passions. And to help this, we love having under-18s guest host the show. If you're a teacher or school professional that's heard the show today and are thinking to yourself, oh, I reckon our students would really enjoy being a part of that, we'd love to hear from you via our social media channels or at thatscience.org. 